Good morning, church. How are we doing? It is a beautiful day, isn't it? It's so fantastic outside. It's, it's a lot of new stuff, new weather. I saw people wearing jackets this morning. I'm like, it's not that cold. <laughs> I, I know you're like, I got to get my galoshes out. It, 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 it misted this weekend. Um, different parts of the world, you do different things. Um, but I, uh, we are so excited. We are starting our new series. We are moving into the book of Acts for the first time. And uh, I, I hope that you guys are amped about it as much as I am. It is a, a lot of questions like, why Acts? Why would we pick the book of Acts to start with? Like, what, Simon, why wouldn't you pick something where, like, that's more topical as to where we are in life right now? Like, There's a lot of really weird things going on in the world, like we should like look at these subjects and these ideas, or, or maybe we should focus on a, on a shorter book, Simon. It's, it's 28 chapters. Like That's going to take some time to work through that, and, and you're right, it will. Or, or maybe you're like, what about just like a character study, or, or maybe like a minor prophet? Like, ease into it, man. Like, why are you jumping into a big book like this? And then there's always the guy who's like, what about Revelation. We should do Revelation. There's always the guy who wants to study Revelation, right? You're like, I'm that guy. Someday, someday we'll get there. But all of those books and all those ideas, there's a time and a place for it, right? They, they all have their reasons for why we would do those. And those are all good things. And they're all good books and good ideas. And, and we're going to do some. But as I was praying and just asking God, you know, when I first got here, God, what do you, what do you want me to teach on? What do you want me to do? And, and then I said, well, I got to kind of like assess the church and where is the church at and what is the church going through and we're, we're going into a new chapter right it's a new chapter of grace hills and where they are and, and and who we are as a church and what better place to start than what god did early on with the church is as god's going to prepare us for the things that he wants us to do here what better place to be rooted what better place to be grounded than in where it exploded where the first church started and what they did now with that, there's a lot that comes with this book. This book can be uh, a little scary for a lot of people. There's a lot of things in here that are just like, that story's crazy. And you'd be right. There's a lot of crazy stories in the books of Acts. In the books of Acts. And as you look at it, you see that God's just doing tremendous things. And you've got people speaking in tongues. You've got this anointing fire. And like, well, are we going to talk about tongues? We're going to talk about it. We're going to get there. Eventually, we're going to get to all that stuff and talk about what God is doing and why he's doing it. But as I have looked at this, many people look at the early church. And they go, oh, man, we need to get back there. we got to get to the good old days. And, and it's oddly enough, there's a lot of people who think like, this is how it's supposed to be. This is exactly what it looks like. This is exactly what should be going on. They had it all right. And we can start to really over-romanticize the early church. And, and I would say this, based on what I've read, based on what I studied, this is not what the early church looked like. It wasn't the nice, neat rows, and we all sat nicely in our, in our best clothes, and we had this, you know, these performances. That's not what it really looked like. And what you'll start to find as we study the book of Acts is it's not, it's not this, here's exactly how you do church. A lot of it is based out of principles, and there's a reason why that the gospel, the church, can go into any country and any culture and any society, and it can work because there's this freedom that the church can express itself in the context of that area to where God would be glorified. And there are of course, things that God's like, this is how you should do stuff, and this is how you shouldn't do stuff. But as you look at the early church, I, I want to just, just say it like really clearly. It was the Wild West. 
It was just crazy. There was just things happening, and they were kind of like shooting from the hip and working from the fly, and there was this thing that was happening that they were doing things wrong all the time. They were literally making lots and lots of mistakes, but what we saw was that the Holy Spirit was correcting them. The Holy Spirit was guiding them and instructing them on how they should worship God, how they should live out their lives, and how they should take the message of Jesus Christ forward. I mean, they had to face tons of problems logistically um, early on in the church. They exploded by thousands of people. Like, how do you serve and care and take care of all those people? What does prayer look like? What does worship look like? What do you do with the tithe money? There's all these things that they didn't know what to do. They had all these obstacles. They were still, you know, coming into like persecution was starting pretty much immediately from when Jesus was there. And they were people that would come in that would try to get their own glory and try to steal some of God's glory at different times. They would want to follow God's will for their life. And yet, this is the vessel that God chooses to take the message of Jesus Christ forward. And as I say the word church, is a working definition that I want to kind of have us revolve around. And here's my definition that I came up with this week. I didn't, I mean, I'm sure there's parts of it that are from other people, but I wrote it without looking, so I'm going to say it's mine. That's what I'm going to do. A group of people living in community, submitting to Jesus and his teachings through the power of the Holy Spirit and taking the gospel to the, the whole world. That's my definition. As I talk about the church, notice I didn't say a building. Notice that I didn't say a service. It's a group of people walking through life, glorifying God with everything that they do. And here's what I love. If you studied the Old Testament, God continually used imperfect people so that he would receive glory. And right, right here from the beginning, we see again, God is going to use imperfect people, and you're going to see lots of them in the book of Acts. He's going to use imperfect people to bring him glory. That we are included in this. And so, if you have your Bibles, I would love for you to turn to Acts chapter 1. We're only going to be in five verses today, verses 1 through 5. If you didn't bring a Bible, there's one in front of you in the seat right there. You can grab one of those. Um, if you need a Bible, take it, please. Uh, if you're like, ah, I just not trying to navigate the Bible, it'll be up on the screen. You can go ahead and use that as well. Acts 1, 1. In the first book, O Theophilus, I dealt with all that Jesus began to do and to teach. Until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen, he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, from John the ba uh, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Let's go ahead and pray. Jesus, uh, this book is, is daunting. There's, there's so much. And I know that this is not going to be an exhaustive study on this book. But Lord, I know that you have a word for us. Even today as we are just in the introduction, that there is a word that you would have for us to speak to us, to show us more of who you are, that we would submit and surrender to who you are. That as we see that this church that, that we're talking about is the very church that we are in today, that the church is continuing on, that you've included us to be a part of it until you return. And I ask that we would look at the brothers and the sisters that have gone before us, and we would see what you're doing, that we would understand, Holy Spirit, that you are, you are moving amongst your people, 
and that you are doing something far bigger and wider than we could ever possibly imagine. And Holy Spirit, I ask as I, as I teach through this and I teach about you that you would give me the right words to say, that you would take things off my notes that just shouldn't be there, that you would give me the words to speak that need to be from you in this moment to these people, and that ultimately we would walk away encouraged and glorifying you. pray this in your glorious and amazing name. Amen. <clears throat> so the book of Acts is written in a, in a pretty unique way. Uh, and this week, you might notice, I'm going to spend some time talking about the background a little bit more than I normally do, but we will get to the verses, so just know that introductions kind of have that rhythm built into them. But it's, it's a book that's written differently. And so you see that it's a hero story. It's a, it's a story of a hero. It's a story of Jesus. It's, it's an adventure story of people going through all these different adventures and all these different things that are happening. It's a travel story. It's a conversion story. It's a miracle story. And what we see is that over and over again, as we are about 2,000 years, it has become our story. This is our story. See, it doesn't end in chapter 28. That's just when he stopped writing. The church is continuing on, and we are a part of this story. We get to be a part of what God is doing. As God's people were empowered by the Holy Spirit, they were able to experience God and to see him change the world by stepping out in faith and trusting him to provide empowered for a very specific reason, and that was to be a witness of Jesus and to take the good news of the gospel to other people. And next week, we're going to talk about what that looks like and how we've been called to that, commanded to that. If you know anything about the book of Acts, it's actually, uh, it's, it's a second part. It's, it's the second part of a two-series book that was, that was developed. And the first book is about the life of Jesus, and the second book is about the life of the church led by the disciples through the Holy Spirit. And the first book that we talk about and that maybe you know about would be the book of Luke. That's right. Dr. Luke. Dr. Luke traveled with Paul, helped Paul, banged him up when he got stoned and beat and thrown out of cities. He was there to help Paul out. And so he wrote Luke and then he wrote Acts. And you might uh, wonder, why is it two books? It seems weird that it would be two books. And there's a couple of reasons. One is there's natural breaks in what it is, right? So there's the, there's the life of Jesus that he dies, he raises again, there's the ascension, and then what happens after that? And so there's these natural breaks, but there's another practical side to it as well. They didn't write in, in, in books like this. They wrote on scrolls. And they would roll these scrolls up and they'd have to get to it. Those, those scrolls could be like 35 feet long. And they were wide and big, and so it just made sense, like, well, I don't want to carry around a 70-foot scroll with me. That's, that's going to be cumbersome. So it was broken up a little bit differently than that. But the books actually overlap and parallel each other. So as we finish the book of Luke, Acts 1 starts just towards the end of Luke, and so you get these two perspectives, and they overlap, and they have this seamless flow of what takes place, and that's exactly how it's supposed to be read as one story. So if you're like, oh, I'd like to study the book of Acts, I would highly recommend read through Luke first, and as you finish Luke, then just jump right into Acts and see like what happens immediately following Jesus leading. One of the things that you'll see in the book of Acts, it's teaching heavy. And, and you're going to say, well, Simon, isn't the entire Bible about teaching? Yes, thank you. But what I mean by that is this. It's 
28 chapters long, and there's 19 very large sermons within this book. And then there's all these little sermons, and depending on what you categorize as a sermon or not, how long or how short it is, we've got between 20 and 30 sermons in this book. And so what you see is that God would speak through these individuals, and they would start to see the first sermons proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ and what he did, and how they would preach. And so if you ever wondered, how do I communicate the gospel? This is the book that you want to be in. This is going to show us what that looks like and how that would happen. And after these guys would preach the gospel, we'd see hundreds and thousands and thousands of people coming to know Jesus. It's a practical book. We can learn from it and we can see what not to do as well as what to do. There are times when the church is doing great things and it's fantastic. And there's times when the church is doing poor things and they need to learn from that. And so we want to press into that. As I mentioned, we're going to break this book up into three big chunks, and our memory verse really encapsulates that idea that we'll see that the church starts in Jerusalem, in the city, and then after that, it's going to go to Judea and Samaria, so it kind of like ripples out, and then it goes to the end of the world, and so we're going to see that the gospel is never meant to stop in one place. It was never meant to terminate on a group of people, but it's constantly meant to keep pushing out and out and out. And that's the big idea. So we'll break it into those three natural segments. And we're going to be in this first segment in what it looks like for the church in Jerusalem until mid-January. So that's where we're going to go. Uh, Lord willing, that's the hope. That's the prayer. And then we'll take a break and we'll get into some other fun stuff. And then we'll be preparing for Easter. And then we're going to have some, it's going to be, it's going to be a fun year. I'm excited about where we're going and what we're going to be teaching. So with that, we see very quickly in verse 1, we see that there's this guy named Theophilus. Who is this? Now, if you don't know the original name, it actually means lover of God or friend of God. That's what his name means. And there's a lot of speculation on who he was. Was he a wealthy Roman uh, official? Uh, was he just a literary sponsor? Uh, could it be that this idea of Theophilus was just a title for all Christians? If it meant lover of God or friend of God, does it mean that it's just more of a title? And so it's actually written to all of the Christians. Well, that's not really the point. And I don't want us to get too wrapped up in that because there's a lot of smart people, smarter than I, that have written books on this. But the big idea is historically what we'll see is that it is a, is a wealthy Christian who had funded Luke to go and to write these books so there would be documentation about what God did and what the church was doing. And so what would happen is he would fund Luke and Luke would then go. And then, so Luke was around, so he was an eyewitness. But he also interviewed other eyewitnesses and he would write down everything that was happening. And he was there for the, for the beginning of the church. So he saw all the crazy things that were going on. And so he was, a first, he was a first person eyewitness. And then others were witnesses. And so this is really important. This is not a book that was like, oh, and a couple thousand years later, someone scrapped together some stuff and, and kind of filled in the blanks and made it work. No. Eyewitness accounts. Actual people that were there that saw Jesus, that talked to Jesus, that were healed by Jesus, that interacted with Jesus, that were there for the church, that saw the church grow, that saw the persecution of the church. One of them was a persecutor of the church. Like all those things were taking place, and so they saw it. So if it was a lie, someone would refute it. They'd say, no, that's not true. That didn't happen that way. That's a problem when you write something a few hundred years after it happened. There's no one to oppose you, is there? But we see is that there would be opposition if this was inaccurate. And especially if they believe this is God's word, then it needs to be taken care of. 
And so that's where we are. Now, I've been thinking a lot this week. Um, a lot of things have been popping up, and I don't know what it is. It, the older you get, the more people die. Can we just call that what it is? We all understand the reality of death, and we all hate it. None of us like it. None of us are excited about that. There is a finality that comes with death, and, and I just don't know what it is, but it just seems like more and more people are, are passing away, and as I get older, uh, my favorite musicians and my favorite actors and actresses, they start to pass away. Um, in the last few years, I've seen uh, family members pass away. This last year, my father passed away. Like, this is a real thing. And we understand the weight of what this looks like, and the finality of death is heavy. And it feels like it's, it's always kind of hanging around. Well, as I was studying this, and I was thinking through death and what that meant, there's this thing that happens sometimes when we talk about Jesus. See, we all would say, oh, Jesus came and he lived a perfect life and he died on the cross for my sins. I hear people say that all the time. And they just leave out this really key important fact that he didn't stay dead. Like, he, he's not dead. Like, this was so, we have no compartment for this. It wasn't like, oh, he was dead for 20 minutes and I saw a light and I made a movie about it and I wrote a book. We're talking three days. No one dies for three days and like, hey, I'm back. See, like, it's so important that we understand that Jesus coming back to life was great. I could be like, hey, I'm gonna die for your sins, everybody. They're gonna put me up on a cross and it'll be great. But guess what's not gonna happen? I'm not coming back. I don't have that ability. So when he made these claims, I was going to die in your place. When he, if he didn't rise, raise from the dead, we have a huge problem. Because you know what happens if he stays dead? Sin wins, right? Death wins if he stays dead. And so if he is saying, I rose from the dead, meaning I conquered sin, I conquered death, if we've placed our life in the life of Jesus, what have I done? Now, I have conquered sin and death through the work of Jesus Christ. So it actually gives us hope that we would not have hope if he did not raise from the dead. And so that's the big idea is that him raising from the dead actually does something for us. You say, well, why are we even talking about this, Simon? Because Luke does. And after suffering, he's referring to the death of Jesus, that Jesus did die. There was suffering involved in what he's doing. That's how we received our salvation. That's when we talk about when his body was broken, when we take communion, his blood was spilled out. That's why we're talking about that. That's what that's about. It says that he made many proofs. What's that all about? What does that mean? Why should that be important? Well, Jesus said, I'm going to raise from the dead. Like, I won't stay dead. He said that to people. So if he didn't do that, what does that make him? Liar. I'm always going to ask super easy questions, just so you know. I'm just going to like just lob them up to you. God, Jesus, Bible will almost always get you an A in class here. So he's, he would have made him a liar. It, it, he, would have, he would have been false. So it was the proof. He didn't just say, hey, everyone, I'm going to raise from the dead. Now, you're never going to see me, but you know, and I know that I did. We're not going to accept that, aren't we? We, we need proof. Like, yeah, you can tell me that you've raised from the dead, but if I don't see that you've raised from the dead, it doesn't mean anything. It doesn't seem like that makes any sense. 
And so no, he was going to show up and show them that they would be without a doubt that this was Jesus. He died. He rose from the dead. Now remember, many of them saw Jesus die. They saw him go through the trial. They saw him get beat. They saw him get tortured when he got flogged. They saw him go to the cross. They saw him bring him down off the cross. The spear was shoved in his side. He was dead. They wrapped him in linens and spice. They put him in the tomb and they rolled the door shut. Dead. So like, here's, here's why I bring up getting older and seeing people die. Like we know it's final. We don't get to have that last conversation. We don't get to have that last embrace. We don't get to work through the reconciliation of sin and hurt and brokenness that's there anymore. And so when that person dies, that opportunity dies as well, doesn't it? And so we know that you can't do that. And so if you were to put yourself in the shoes of the men and the women that had followed Jesus, there's probably a bit of hopelessness going on. Like he said he was going to do these things and he was going to be this great conqueror and he was going to take care of everything. And now he's gone and he's dead. I mean, we wrapped him up like he was supposed to free us all. And I'm sure there's some doubt. I'm sure their faith was kind of shaky in that moment. I mean, wouldn't we feel the same way? I know I would. But here's the beauty of Jesus. He wanted his people to be strengthened in their faith. He wanted them to not lose heart. He wanted them to know that his words were true and they can trust him no matter what he says, even if it seems crazy like I'm going to raise from the dead. So what did he do? Over the next 40 days, he started appearing to them in different ways and at different times to different people for different reasons. And so what I want to do is this. I thought it'd be really fun to just recount some of those interactions and why those different interactions were important. And, and some of you, you know, we, we, we put together a Bible study, a personal time. Matt writes that, and he puts that together. He does a great job of doing all that. And, and that's something that hopefully serves you really well. And some of you are like, oh, that's just, you know, I'm looking for something different. Well, here's an idea. You, you, maybe you've noticed, I, I go through a lot of verses, and sometimes I read them, and sometimes I don't. What if you were to take that week and say, hey, let me go to the app, and let me go and look at all the, the references, and I just read this same section every day of the week, and then I look at all the references, and I read through those, and how cool would it be for you to spend a week in this passage? And I'll tell you, it's changed me this week. For you to go through that and to see what God is doing, let his word wash over you and show you more of who he is. And so we can get all these on our app, so feel free to do that. But here's what I want to start. I want to start with Mary Magdalene. Mary Magdalene goes, she's like, I got to go and make sure that everything's finished up for the burial and all that. And so in John 20, 11 through 18, we see that interaction. Remember, remember her story? She was abused and mistreated by men. The only man that showed her real love that wasn't trying to use her was Jesus. And the one guy who treated her with respect and dignity and worth was gone. So Jesus shows up. He says, Mary. And her eyes are opened up. She clings to him. She's like, I haven't left you. I haven't deserted you. I love you. I care for you. 
I'm here for you. That You'll never be alone. There'll always be a man who loves you the right way. And I am that man for you. I care for you. I'm going to meet every desire and need that you possibly have. And I will never let you down. We see that on the, on the road to Emmaus, that the two disciples are on that road, right? And they're walking, and then Jesus shows up, but they don't recognize him. So I don't know if he had, like, the, the glasses with the mustache or something. But however, did he, they couldn't tell who he was. And he's walking with them on the road. And then he starts explaining. It's like, oh, what's going on? It's like, you didn't hear about Jesus? And he's, like, kind of playing dumb, which I, I love that Jesus does that. He's like, who? And so then he starts, starts explaining how everything in the Old Testament points to Jesus, and I, and I love that. So last week we talked about those three different roles. There's the prophet, priest, and king. And so Jesus is clearly walking through that, you know, David was a good king, but I, Jesus is the better king. He rules perfectly. He also would go like, he is, he, is, he is the perfect prophet, that he communicates God's word perfectly and accurately in every single way, and there's no falsehood in anything that he says. And that when he speaks, that he spoke with authority, the Bible would say, because he is the one who wrote it, and that he is the perfect priest. Remember, we talked about that last week. The role of a priest is a man among the people, caring for the people, being an example for the people, making sure that they could come towards God. He is that perfect prophet, priest, king. He would talk through the law and how he fulfills the law perfectly and no one else was able to. He would talk about the sacrificial system. Like, these are the reasons why there have to be sacrifices for the forgiveness of sins. And without that sacrifice, there can be no relationship with God. But Jesus did it perfectly because he was the perfect sacrifice that met all of God's requirement and absorbed all the wrath of God. And he would walk through the entire Old Testament. What a great, what a great walk that must have been. And then he's like, hey, it's me, see ya. And it's like, what, what just happened? Like, wh- why, why does he do that? And then we see that he, uh, he shows up to all the disciples. And in Luke 24, 36 through 49, to show that there's a physical resurrection that it wasn't just Jesus in spirit or an angel or some shining light, but he came to him. It says he ate with him. And then later, Thomas would show up. He's like, hey, go ahead, touch me. Touch my wounds. I'm real. See, it's important to know that it was more than just this physical uh, apparition that he would see. It, no, real physical Jesus. Ghosts don't eat. I learned that from Pirates of the Caribbean. You can't do that. We see that Peter on the beach, which is probably my favorite interaction. John 21, 1 through 20, read that. You've got to remember the story, what happened to to Peter, right? Peter says, oh, Jesus, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I will go. I will die for you, Jesus. And he's like, you're going to deny me three times before the rooster crows three times. Before the rooster crows, you're going to deny me three times. He's like, I would never do it. He's like, you will. And then sure enough, we see that Peter during the trial starts to deny Jesus. Like, it's like a, this young girl is like, hey, didn't you walk with Jesus? No, no, no. And he's like afraid of this young girl and her accusations. And then it happens over and over again. And then this is this moment where Jesus and Peter's eyes lock before the rooster crows. And he's like, oh my gosh, what did I do? And he runs away weeping bitterly. And then Jesus dies. How do you think Peter felt? I'm never going to get to say I'm sorry. I'm never going to to repent and ask for forgiveness. This is my Savior. This is my Lord. And I rejected him. I threw him away. And he's a broken man. And so what does he go say? What's he want to do? Hey, let's go fishing, guys. I love that his response, like, we're just going to go fishing. 
And he goes out on the boat, and they're fishing, they're pulling fish in. And then Jesus shows up on the shore, and he, like, starts a fire. And Peter sees him. And he's like, it's Jesus. He can't wait for the boat to get to shore and jumps out of the boat 100 yards out like Forrest Gump and just starts swimming towards the shore. And he's like, Jesus. And he, he realized, I get, my, I get an opportunity. I get to say I'm sorry. And we get this beautiful interaction with Jesus and Peter where he starts asking him, do you love me? How many times does he ask him that? Three. Why does he ask him three times? Because he denied him three times. And he's saying, I love you. I have a job for you. I forgive you. I died for you. Peter, you're important. And Peter is going to be actually, there's two main characters in the book of Acts. One is Peter and the other is Paul. And we'll see that Peter's going to kind of hit the scene running really fast. And he's going to be the, the church is going to be kind of started through Peter. His first sermon is going to be nuts. Like 3,000 people come to Jesus. He's like, I'm going to preach. And like 3,000 people show up and like, like, wouldn't that be a great day here? That'd be pretty nice. So we keep waiting. Not yet. Any day. And so Peter has this moment. And then Jesus shows up to 500 people. Then he's like just a huge crowd of people. And that's in um, 1 Corinthians 15, 6. And then he does the same thing he did with the two guys on the road to Emmaus, that he teaches through all of the stuff about who he is and what he fulfilled through the Old Testament, walking through all the scriptures. Now, that again, there's another sermon. If I could pick a point in time to go back in history, I'd like to be there. I'd like to hear that sermon. It sounds like it'd be very, very good. Then he shows up to the disciples on a mountain in Matthew 28, 8, uh, 16 through 17 talking about what's going to happen and what he wants and what he expects of them. And then there's this one that I just thought, I wanted to throw it in there. 1 Corinthians 15, 7, he goes to his brother James. It's just got to be a cool moment, right? Like, you grew up with this guy. You're like, this guy's different. And he, makes, he, he, he wins at everything. I don't get it. He's always right. He's never wrong. And then as he realized who Jesus was, that, he re, that you realize that he's like, you are the Messiah. You are God. You're my brother, but you're God's son. Like he watched him die. He watched him come to life. He's like, hey man, I love you. And James is going to become a key figure in the early church as well, that he's going to do a lot as well. And he comes and he, he shows his brother love. I love that there are, these, there are these two things happening at the same time. One is that he realizes, like we can, and we can play this weird game, like he's, Jesus is intentional. Jesus is completely intentional and he's completely purposeful and he's completely relational. That Jesus is a relational God that he goes to be like, he could have just said, hey everyone, let's do this in one take. Gather up, you're good, you're good, you're good, we're cool. Here's who I am, here's what I did. All right, deuces. And he could have left. He didn't do that. But yet he did do that at some times. And what we see is that he did one-on-ones with people. He met them where they were. He spoke to their hurts and to their pains. He showed that there was a physical relationship that takes place between you and Jesus. That he's not just, he is here for the masses, but he's here for you. And then it shows that he would show up to these, I mean, you look at the disciples, they're gathering about the size of a life group, right? Right? That he shows that there's value in getting together in these life groups, in these smaller groups, that they would hang out, they would talk, they would do life together, they would eat together, they would do, they would do life in a real way where they knew each other. 
But then he also says he got together with 500 people. That seems like kind of like a church service, doesn't it? That there is value in all three of those things working in conjunction all the time. It's, and there's a movement right now. It's like, oh, it's, all, it's just about home groups. It's all it's about. No, you're missing out. I disagree. I think theology says that it's not just about home groups. I think they're important. I think you should be doing them. I think you should be meeting corporately as well. And I believe you should be doing one-on-ones. I believe you should have one-on-one time with God. It's important. But it shows that Jesus cares and loves and that he wants to be a part of your life and that he wants to encourage his people because he knows that we can't do it on our own. We don't have the ability. I didn't add this verse but I, in, in the notes, but I can give it to you right now. In Matthew 6, 26... He says this, look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor, sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more valuable than they? Who did Jesus go to? Went to people. He didn't go to nature. He didn't go to animals. He didn't go to the stars. He went to people. Now, there's some beautiful places in the world. You ever been to Yosemite? You're like, God drug his finger through this earth and made something amazing because it's beautiful. And it, it screams the name of God, but yet Jesus didn't go there to proclaim, hey, rocks, I'm back. He didn't do that, did he? He went to his people that he cares about because we are important. We are more valuable than they are. You need to hear that today. You are valuable and have value in God's eyes. And Jesus sees you that way. He kept speaking about the kingdom of God and his new people and and how to live for him. This was going to be the place that he was going to light the fuse that was going to blow up everything. And the shock waves would ripple through the world and through history. And then he tells him, hey, stick around. Don't leave the city. You're be like, why the city? Um, I'll just tell you, I lived in Seattle. I lived in the city. I'm not a city guy. That's not me. I thought it was. I'm like, nope, nope. I was in LA this weekend. Nope, nope, no. I just had to wash myself like four times when I got home. But if you're from L.A., that's, I, man, thanks for coming. Glad you're here. Um, I don't know if I saved that one. <laughs> Why the city? Because there's a lot of people there. He didn't go to a remote cabin out in the middle of nowhere. He didn't hide in some podunk area because if the whole point of Jesus coming is to save men and women... You want to be around as many as possible so you can tell them about Jesus. And say, like, what better place in the city? Hang on the city. I'm going to come, and it's going to get nuts real quick. So like, okay, we're going to hang tight. What was the promise of the Father? It's the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is going to come. Jesus told them that he had to leave. He says so in John. <clears throat> in John 16, 7, he said, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, 
The helper will not come to you, but if I go, I will send him to you. He told him the Holy Spirit. And then he goes on to tell him like the role of the Holy Spirit. And that, that whole section is kind of about the Holy Spirit and what's going to happen. He mentions John and the baptism. What was John's big message? You know, it's in Matthew 3, 2. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's the big message. That he was empowered by God to tell his people to repent, that God is coming, to repent, prepare yourself. And it was very similar to what would happen with the priests when they would go to the temple to make sacrifices, right? They had all these ceremonial washings that took place. You got to clean this way and you got to be away from people this way. And then after that, there's got to be blood. You got to put blood on this and your thumb and your earlobe and your toe and all these different things that you would have to do. He's preparing us. But instead of being baptized with water, we're going to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Someone say baptized with fire, that we would be these new creations and that we are called to do something almost like a prophet would. And our message is very similar. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Turn to Jesus and your sins will be forgiven. That's the, that's the big idea. That's what we've been called to do as we're being washed with the Holy Spirit. It happens. And now I get it. The Holy Spirit freaks people out. Some of that's because there's really bad teaching on it. Like, and I, I was trying to think of like, how would I relate the Holy Spirit? Like people had never seen it. And, and so I'm going to use this term and I'm going to quickly say, hold with me. The, the Holy Spirit's like the Tasmanian devil. Yeah, he said devil. No, that's not what I'm saying. But if you think about the Tasmanian devil, he comes in and he's spinning like this crazy whirlwind and there's chaos everywhere that he goes. You can't understand him because he's speaking in tongues and it's just like, he's just like everything that we would know, he's just kind of tearing up. And he's breaking things down. And the Holy Spirit, like we try to contain the Holy Spirit and we can't because you can't contain God. You can't put God in a box. And as the Holy Spirit comes, he's going to start making us live in faith. He's going to start making us proclaim Jesus. He's going to go against the social norms in a way that we've never seen before. And he shows up and he's doing, this is amazing. And it freaks people out because we, we like order. We gotta have all of our things. This is the timing of how the service is gonna go and what we're gonna do. And I fall into the same trap. That's not how it is all the time. See, John called the people to repent for their sins and that's exactly what we get to do. We get to be a part of that. And I would say this, and we'll get into it as, as the weeks go on. And I'll just say, I'm not gonna hit every theological thing that you wanna hit. I am, that is not gonna happen. But what I am gonna strive for is finding areas that we can see what God wants to tell us and where he wants us to repent and where he wants us to trust him and how he wants to grow us through this. But if you look at the main role of the Holy Spirit, it is not about the Holy Spirit getting glory to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit testifies of who? Jesus. The sole purpose of the Holy Spirit is to empower us to proclaim Christ, to point to Christ as our King and Christ as our Lord. And so if any, at any time you're someplace and the Holy Spirit becomes more important than Jesus, you're probably in the wrong place. It's probably really dangerous when the gifts terminate on you and how great you are versus how great Jesus is and what he did. And so if you are like, I don't know what the Holy Spirit does, nutshell, he proclaims Jesus as being Lord and Savior for the world, and he gives us the power to do that to others. That is our call, and that's what we're supposed to be doing. He's given us a helper because we can't do it on our own. We need God constantly in our lives 
Because all of this isn't possible without Jesus. And he says, hey, I'm coming. And it's going to be in a couple of days. I hate waiting. Waiting is the worst. I think the Lord gave us the DMV so we could understand what waiting's like. I can't stand it. It's just like, oh, but isn't most of life waiting? And here's what's happening. We're always waiting for something. And what Jesus is having these guys do in this moment in Acts is they're waiting for the helper. They're waiting for help. And they have to trust and believe Jesus. If Jesus said, I'm going to raise from the dead, and he showed up, he says, hey, I'm here. Look at you. can trust me. Hey, by the way, in a couple of days, this, this helper's going to show up. And they're probably like, I don't understand what this means, Jesus, because they usually didn't understand anything that Jesus said most of the time he taught them. They must have been like, okay, we're waiting for this helper guy. We don't know what he looks like. Is he going to knock? Like, what's going to happen? We'll get there. They're probably like, we have been promised that we're going to go out and be empowered to do these things. Don't know what these things are. But Jesus said that we're going to. Like, they didn't know what to do. They didn't know how to do it, but they said Jesus said it was going to happen. And then they're waiting in this room for him to do it. And I don't, you wonder, did they realize that God was going to use them to change the hearts of men and women? Did they realize that God was going to use them to change the course of the world? That God would include them? That God went to each of them and said, hey, I love you, I care for you, I have a plan and a purpose for your life, and it's going to be far more than you could ever imagine. You think that helped them through the waiting period? Yeah. It had to be this mix of fear, joy, excitement, all wrapped up in vomiting. It had to be like all of that. Like, I don't know what's going to go on. And as I was praying this week, and I'm not going to lie, this was a weird week for me. Um, I think the enemy just wanted to attack me. I felt really discouraged. And I'm like, God, what, what do you want? Like, what do we do with this? And sometimes like, well, I got to repent of this and I got to do this and I got to do that. And, and, and I think at times we can be like, oh man, I'm a, I'm a broken sinner. And we can beat ourselves up. And I just, I thought, man, I just, I think that there's something important about Jesus showing up over those 40 days. And I landed with encouragement that I want you to walk away encouraged. I want you to know that this God loves you and cares for you and has gone to great lengths to save you through his son's death on the cross that he knows you by name and he seeks you out and he knows your brokenness and he speaks truth to that. And then I want you to know that God used Luke and Theophilus to give you these books so you would be encouraged that there is a God who keeps his promises. And if he says that he loves you, he loves you. If he said he died for you, he died for you. If he said that you have been made righteous and you've been justified, then you are justified. If he says he has a plan for you, he has a plan for you. If he says he's going to empower you with the Holy Spirit, he's going to empower you with the Holy Spirit. If he says, I've got a mission for you, he will give you the tools you need to do that. And when you feel alone, you're not the more I talk with people, the more I'm realizing that people feel alone. Whatever you want to do with this last couple of years, do whatever you want with it, but people are lonely. And, you know, there's this funny interaction with Mary Magdalene and Jesus where he's, she's holding on to him so tightly because she doesn't want to lose him. 
And he, and he says, you, you need to let go. Because if I don't go, you can't have the Holy Spirit. Because here's the thing. She felt in that moment that separation of God, right? Like, my, 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 my Lord left. And he's saying, if I don't go, I can't bring you the Holy Spirit. And here's the best part about the Holy Spirit. It doesn't matter if you go to a high mountain, if you go to the low sea, if you're out in the middle of nowhere, or if you're in, if you're in the city. It doesn't matter if you're in jail. It doesn't matter if you're free. I am always with you. You will never be alone. You will always have the Father with you no matter what, because the Holy Spirit resides in those that have called on the name of Jesus for salvation. If you need encouragement today, I want you to take encouragement. I had a bunch of points. I've scrubbed all of them because I just want us to walk away and be encouraged because at the end of the day, this God who personally knows you has personally given you the Holy Spirit to be with you. Know that you're not alone. And maybe a great question in your, in your life groups this week is, do I need encouragement Am I discouraged? Because if you're discouraged, the, God's word has answers and hope, and he has given you the men and the women in that room to pour into your life so you would not be alone. Ask those questions. Know that there's answers. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you for this morning. I know that maybe this sermon has gone in a different way than most people would anticipate, and I just, I just want to respond to you and submit to you in that. And I just want to do what you've called me to do. And Lord, if there are men and women here today that are feeling discouraged, that are feeling lonely and lost and alone from you, that I just pray that this speaks to the character and the nature of who you are, that you are a personal, loving, upfront God. That you know us, that you seek us out. You died for us. You gave us new life. That you conquered sin. You conquered death. And that we can rest in that. And that we are victorious now. And that though the world may seem like it's crashing down and falling in on us, it has not overcome you. And you have placed us here for a reason. Love you. Pray this in your glorious and amazing name. Amen. Amen.